Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so glad you're joining me here at the beautiful Middleby Residential Viking Showroom in the Merchandise Mart here with my special co-host, Chef Jamie Lareda. It's so good to be with you. And it's so great to be with you. And we're still here, folks. And of course, we're bringing you such great chefs from all over the world, Margaret. And today, I think we've got quite the special guest. Someone who truly needs no introduction, Chef Andrew Zimmern. He is an Emmy Award winner, four-time James Beard Award winner, uh, has some wonderful production things going on, has a great heart for charity, so many things to talk about. But Chef Zimmern, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Please call me Andrew. Oh, well, thank you, Andrew. Well, and- Margaret, Margaret, I have to say something to Andrew, because I don't know if he remembers, and I'm kind of a little bit shy about it, Andrew, but, you know, I just can't stop thinking about our first kiss. <laughs> the, I was hoping that you wouldn't bring that up. It's still, it's still a little bit of a heart wound for me. But okay. if, if you want to take off your loafers and tap dance all over that, that's fine. Okay, well, you know, it was on the red carpet yes. from the James Beard Awards. We were on the red carpet, and I was so hungry, and you were eating a slice of pizza, very much like you're eating something here today. I, don't know I just, I, well, I, right, before we fit, right before we started recording, I crushed the last of a, a mini pack of red vines, uh, a, licorice oh, that, ah. a licorice that I never started eating until I got into the TV business. But it, 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 for some reason, Red Vines has become the approved licorice brand on every craft services table from a- you know L.A. What? to New York City. And, and I've, got a thi- I've got a thing for them. And so, okay. yes. Uh, we have to talk about the Red Vines, Chef, because I find that a stale Red Vine is different from a fresh Red Vine. Without a doubt, which is why we buy the mini packs, so they're always, always fresh. <laughs> if somebody wants to stale them out on their desk, and some people do... I, for one, uh, in uh, spring, when peeps come out, are you aware of the marshmallow peeps? Oh, yeah. What are you talking I'll about? Buy, I'm, aware uh, of them. I'm from I'll, New Jersey. We were covered. I'll go to Target, and I will buy 40 or 50 packs of them, and I will slice open the, each package and stack them on this shelf uh, in, well, this area between the main house and the garage where it's kind of cooler. It's not really heated, but it's not really, doesn't get too cold. It's very bug free. It's a really great place to do this. We have these cupboards and I put the peeps in there and I've learned, I've done this for 20 years. It's about 45, 48 days. You go back, they're still soft in the middle, but crunchy on the outside. So I actually purposely stale my peeps, but yet with red vines, I like them fresh. Yes, me too. I'm a fresh. I like the where you went with the peeps because I do like. Sorry, Mark. It's okay. We're, we're, we're learning we're, so well, much. We kissed. I have to tell. I, I <laughs> and we to. have to go back to the red carpet of about that. So we're on the red carpet. And we're interviewing <laughs> chefs, and you come along, and I had not eaten. I was starving. You have to have 
a slice of pizza in your hand. Somebody had and given I, me pizza, another person, three media slots down from you, uh, was handing out pizza, right, as a fun little gimmick. So I'd eaten one and I didn't want to, you know, fill up before I was going in and, you know, had to do my work uh-huh. and stuff like that. Well, don't and ruin I, it for me. Don't you dare tell me <laughs> that you were, didn't want that slice of pizza. I prefer no, it was, to think. It was, very, it was very special, of course. But my point was, I have been that person on the other side who's like, yes. you got to stand in place. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't get something to eat. There's nothing across the street. I mean, at the Lyric <laughs> Theater, uh, Lyric Opera House in Chicago, I mean, you, you have to walk 10 blocks to, you know, find a convenience store, right? So you're, you're pretty much SOL. So I thought it was, you know, it seemed like the right the, thing to do. The right thing to do. <laughs> you, and you know what? You did the right thing because I remember looking at the pizza, thinking to myself, damn, I really want that pizza. And then you said to me, I said, damn, it looks good. And you said, you know what? And you, you actually fed me a bite yeah, and then I, gave I it to me. And then you kissed me on the head. And I thought. Because yes. you're a perfect. bald man. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's and how, bald, that's how bald men do that. <laughs> see, we're connecting on many levels yes. once again. I'm so glad for the pizza and the kiss. So I just wanted to connect, reconnect with you. Absolutely. But anyway, there is a follow-up to this, too, because, Jamie, you might remember the next year we once again saw you with Kitchen Chat on the red carpet at James Beard. And this time you had this delicious puff pastry of some sort. I can't remember, but and I got always none of with that food. And no kiss. So hmm. I didn't want to bring that. It was, a bad, year. It was a bad year for us. Awkward. I was hurt. Sorry. I was in reactive mode. I was hurt. I meant to call you. Okay, here we go. Let's start the kitchen chat. Let's have a kitchen chat for sure. First of all, let's start it off with what is the most recent project we're working on? We'd love to be able to to catch up on that. Oh, gosh. Uh, So many. We have have, uh, several businesses here in our headquarters in beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota, where today it's 50 degrees and absolutely stunning out. Um, I love saying that because everyone thinks it's always like 10 below zero and, and looks like, you know, the mall scene in Fargo. Uh, it is not. Um, Chicago, we hear you. It is a, uh, we, we really, really, really uh, have some cool stuff going on. On the, uh, on the marketing uh, side of things, we have a new spice line that I just came out with uh, in partnership with Badia. Uh, people can find it at Walmart and ShopRite. And What's it at called? A, at a time... It, it, each one is in it's it's Andrew Zimmern's Kitchen Adventures. It's six different spice blends. Uh, you can also order them at BadiaSpices.com. Um, in a year where we can't travel and where more people are cooking at home, I wanted to find easy entry points for people to, to really capture the essence of a place with a superior set of all natural ingredients. So I'll give you a really cool uh, thing that we did. We created a, uh, a, a Tuscan sun seasoning, right? With, you know, the usual little chili flake, oregano, basil, right? So the kind of thing that you could put the quote unquote flavors of Italy into your, into your dishes. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to put all natural ingredients that actually belonged in there with those other things. So we took a look at, for example, my marinara recipe and the other things that it has in there. It has shallots, it has garlic, and it has wine. So we actually put dehydrated wine. We put dehydrated shallots, not like shallot salt, shallot powder, fascia, but actual dehydrated shallots and actual dehydrated garlic. So you can actually use it as a dip, as a marinade, because it all re- 
rehydrates itself, or you can just, you know, put a few tablespoons with your olive oil as you're beginning to uh, sweat that and add your tomatoes. And you actually, you know, have a fantastic sort of all in one product. And we, I'm just nuts about these. I, I think they are vastly superior to anything else in the marketplace. And I'm so proud of them. We worked for a long time on them. They sound delicious. Does that, does that dehydrated wine come in a box by any chance? Well, interesting that you would say that. Uh, <laughs> it comes, it comes in, a, in containers. You can get it from so you know, it's, it's hard to use a home dehydrator or the wine falls through all those little holes. But I'm, I'm amazed once I started playing around, you know, when the professional uh, spice uh, people send you the ingredients to play with. So what they create en masse is identical to what we're working with in a smaller batch in the kitchen. Um, we started sprinkling this dehydrated wine on everything. I mean, it really tastes tannic and raisiny and tart and sweet. It has all the character notes of, of a typical, you know, Italian red wine. And so we found like just sprinkling on a bagel with cream cheese. I, I kid wow. you not was, oh. was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I need this yeah, ingredient sure. around all the time. I'm thinking about making it a bath salt or maybe make, making it a. It would be, it would be very good that way. And then you, you bring it into your body through your pores. Yeah, you're like bathing in yeah. port. You Just know what I'm saying? Just soak it. Why not? I'm doing it anyway. Would you get a little tipsy? I guess so. I hope so. I mean, that's part of the, I mean, hopefully that would be part of the benefit. I, you know, thank you, chef. I, I tell people all the time, if, if, if alcohol didn't get you buzzed, nobody would drink it. I mean, let's just acknowledge, let's just acknowledge the truth about it. Right. Why do we drink it? It doesn't taste very good all the time. Well, a, a lot does. And, and I know you're making a joke. And it also makes what you drink or eat with it many times, hopefully, if you're doing it right, taste better. However, right. we, the vast majority of people, it's for the effect. Right. You know? Well, I think it makes life taste better, Andrew. Yes, it does. It does. Good way you to know, put alc- it. There's a, good there, way to there's put a, it. Yeah. Alcohol. It True. makes life taste better. Okay, and speaking of tasting better, I am so curious. Just recently, you featured on Twitter a photo of sea asparagus. What exactly is sea asparagus? Uh, sea and grapes. what does it taste? Or sea grapes? And sea what grapes. does it taste like? Uh, I don't know. Sea, sea asparagus? <laughs> no, no, no. Because there's also sea. Different. There is also sea asparagus. Um, oh, okay. Amongst the many things that I'm involved in for the last four years, I've been a uh, on the lecture circuit talking about aquaculture. Um, you know, I believe in resolving and working towards uh, solutions for our climate crisis that we're in. This is a very grave time in our in our planetary history. Um, and we really have to all engage on a certain level. And I, I I've learned that, you know, much better to be a couple inches deep and a yard wide than a millimeter deep and a mile wide and, and essentially render myself ineffective. So for the, for the last four years, I've chosen three or four days during the year uh, to do a lot of work devoted to exploring uh, aquaculture issues uh, with people, most notably for uh, fans at South by Southwest, where again, this March, I'm doing a a whole Andrew Zimmer day devoted to aquaculture and all the issues around it as we try to figure out how to feed a hungry planet and to dispel some of the myths of aquaculture. And, and, and I really believe that this is not a one solution 
uh, way to attack a problem. We have to engage with like 20 solutions, right? We have to waste less. We have to change our diet. We have to rely on aquaculture. And one of the last things with my Instagram live on Thursday nights, for people who really want to have a lot of fun, join us Thursday nights at five o'clock central for my Instagram live uh, show uh, at Chef AZ. Um, For a whole month, we featured uh, different fish that are raised in aquaculture environment, ones that people may not be aware of. And that was great, but we left out sea vegetables. So my friends at uh, uh, Monterey Bay Seaweeds uh, sent me, uh, Dr. Michael Graham sent me six different types of seaweed, one of which were sea grapes. And these were purple ones. And they look like tiny little clusters of grapes uh, when you hold them up. And it's very, very sweet. And you pop in your mouth and it has a little bit of salinity and then finishes sweet as well. And that's tasting it uh, plain. If you take those little bunches of grapes and you dip them in just a little bit of uh, soy sauce and lemon juice mixed two to one, or a little bit of nuoc cham, right? A Vietnamese uh, sweetened lime chili and fish sauce uh, sauce. It just comes alive with all of those flavors. And what we were trying to induce people to do was to perhaps be a little more open to trying those foods. Um, Seaweed has been a hard sell here in America. The entire rest of the world eats it. And I think it's an easy entry point into uh, solving some of the issues that confront us as a, as a planet when it comes to eating. Wow. Are yeah. there different varietals? Like, are there different just like in the... Thousands. 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 Yeah, it's re- and it's, it's, really, it's really quite extraordinary. When I was in Vancouver shooting about four or five years ago, we took giant 30-foot-long pieces of bull kelp. Uh, and the, the, the knobs on the bull kelp are so hard and so thick that it actually has to be cut with a serrated knife and pickled is the only way that you can eat it. And then chefs take these really broad sheets of the bull kelp. They'll wrap fish in it and steam it or wrap fish in it and then do a salt crust. And that seaweed flavor infuses into the fish. It's really amazing. I got baby bull kelp uh, from Monterey Bay Seaweeds. Extraordinary. You can just eat it raw no no cooking nothing required it's so thin and so tasty uh we got sea lettuces uh we got uh very traditional japanese seaweeds that everyone seems to ignore when they're used as garnishes on their uh saboria when people are um getting ready to cook uh or sorry we're getting ready to eat in the sushi bar it's it's an, it's a pretty extraordinary uh fun uh part of the world uh, to be eating in is this world of sea vegetables. And I'm so glad that so many people like the folks at Monterey Bay are actually uh, trying to get it into the hands of chefs and cooks and then ultimately into supermarkets, et cetera, as demand increases, because I think it's a, it's, it's the new wave of eating and it's so delicious and so good for you as well. Wow. I'm so fascinated, Margaret. Like I, all I want to do is eat some sea grapes right now. If you were here, I would serve them to you, but here's the, (laughs) on the red carpet. Exactly. Exactly. Peel me a grape. Um, The (laughs) sea grape. (laughs) I think what's, I think what's really cool here is, and, 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 you know, I, I, I'm one of those people that really likes social media for a lot of reasons, mostly because of the way it democratizes ideas like this. Mm. Um, And this is not a shill. We're not, you know, this isn't a, a sponsored bit or anything like that. I have no relationship with Monterey Bay, but we did a taste test of four or five of them 
And instead of me just talking about it, I brought on a, a friend to, to taste them with me, uh, someone who's not as uh, in love with seaweed necessarily as I am. Uh, and we posted it on our YouTube channel. So people should take a look and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We have a lot of cool stuff uh, that's going on there. In addition to all the TV shows that we have, we have a new one coming out with Magnolia that premieres uh, on D plus in January called family dinner. And we have, uh, and that same series family dinner will be on the linear network when it premieres at the end of Q1, 2021, uh, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting time around here. So Andrew, yeah. I, have, I have a question for you. And I like to ask this to all of the chefs that come on kitchen chat, because I have such like distinct defining moments of when I knew that food was going to be a big part of my life. What was the one defining moment? Maybe it's when you were a kid or an adult that really kind of like jolted you into the food world? What was the one moment, the one ingredient, the one dish, or let, let, let us know what that moment was. Well, it's, it's hard for, for me. Um, I never knew a time and can never remember a time that I didn't want to be involved in food. Um, and when I look back at the early years of my childhood, five and under and little pictures and stories from my parents, you could see that already, uh, you know, before my nascent memory sort of left me, uh, I was already sold on it. It was already in my DNA. Um, I, I, my grandmother would babysit me while she sat me on the little stool in her kitchen and I would cook and watch her and keep me occupied. She'd let me stir something in a bowl. Same, same. Um, and I, and I, and I loved those moments with my grandmother. Uh, my mother gardened and, uh, and, what we now call foraging, uh, we went crabbing and clamming and surf casting and grabbed ropes of mussels from the jetties out on Long Island and all those things that I was doing at age three, four, five with my mother. Um, and uh, there are pictures uh, of me as a, as a little boy um, eating food that uh, other kids were not eating. Uh, and that was everything from blowfish tails to grilled eel that came out of Three Mile Harbor back when eels out of Three Mile Harbor were edible. Um, and, you know, it, 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 I look at that and I'm like, wow, the die was cast pretty early on. I really wanted to try anything and everything. And the library of tastes and flavors and memories that I have is probably my most valuable asset. So the real answer to that question is I, I've never known a time where I wasn't sure that this was going to be what I was going to do. Okay. Wow. I, it's, I, this is just like such a culinary history lesson as well while we're here too. And bizarre foods, of course, let's talk about that. What was this inspiration behind that and Andrew what was the most bizarre food truly you've ever had because Jamie is trying on my culinary journey to expand my palate <laughs> but I'm just curious what inspired you why that show and what uh, was your most memorable taste well it was uh, it, fascinatingly uh it, it it almost didn't get made um mm -hmm. I I pitched a show for years and years about uh, exploring culture through food and doing it from the fringes. And it was a very, very, I'll just call it a, a, a fairly deep intellectual exercise. Right. And I was convinced, uh, you know, one of my uh, superpowers 
is being able to sort of see certain things that are happening in the food and culture world before they happen, or I'm able to extrapolate an idea maybe a little earlier than other people. And 15, 18 years ago, I saw human beings as I traveled around the world in my regular life, uh, defining themselves by our differences with each other, as opposed to our commonalities. Um, it doesn't matter who you want to love, what kind of music you listen to, what God you worship, if any, uh, what language you speak, what the color of your skin is. We have way mo much more important stuff that's in common. That, that stuff is window dressing. And quite frankly, in some cases, it's actually none of my business what anybody else wants to do with that. You, anyone should be able to love whom they want to love, worship whom they want to worship, right? As long as someone else isn't getting hurt. Right. So I, I realized that if we explored culture through food, we, we, we would be able to dig into that. And I pitched that show and Pat Young, who was the, uh, the head of Travel Channel at the time, said, you know something, you can go down the street to PBS and they'll buy eight episodes of that tomorrow. That's a smart, good show. You're a talented host. He said, but, you know, you're going to get the love and applause of your peers and you're going to be back at square one after eight episodes. He says, we're, we're in the entertainment industry. He said, if you're selling me something that's 80% intellectual and 20% entertainment, he said, flip the script for me. Give me something that's 80% entertainment and 20% educational. You'll get the audience. In fact, you'll get a bigger audience to preach right. to. You'll get a bigger platform and I'll have you on international TV. He said that show will last 10 years. Well, he was wrong by almost three years. It was on for 12 and a half. And wow. the, only reason that it, the only reason it went away was because Travel Channel stopped doing travel and food and turned into a ghost and paranormal show uh, network. Um, the, <laughs> well, the, the fascinating thing about it to me was I went... I left his office that day, came back the next day and just just repositioned the, the show. So instead of exploring this intellectual idea, let's explore the food from the fringe and along the way talk about our commonalities. Just the act of of me showing up in someone's house and sharing a meal, regardless of what it was. Um, the third episode that we shot of this show uh was in Ecuador and we were in the uh, Amazonian uh, southeastern part of that country. We were in, in the Pilchicoa river system with the Pilchicoa Indians. And uh, one of Donaldo, one of our uh, support staff down there who was a Pilchicoa uh, invited us to his home and he had uh, two or three uh, things that, he was going to make for us. But the, the highlight of the meal were these giant coconut grubs about the size of your thumb, big white wriggly things that eat rotted uh, coconut palm. Wood. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and uh, it was Donaldo, myself and his two children. His wife had walked 80 miles down river to sell trinkets at the market. And then she would walk back and uh, she did this every other week. And so she wasn't there. And Donaldo uh, roasted these grubs over an open fire. And there were four of us, right? And, uh, but there were, uh, I think, 10 or 11 of the grubs. 
So he gave me three, right? Wow. Which meant that the others would not, some of the others would not get three. And I think at that moment, the, the, the die was cast for what that show was going to be about. How do I sit there in someone's home and treat, <laughs> treat him with dignity and respect, allow him yeah. to make the decision? Yeah. I want to be a good guest. He wants to give me three grubs, right? But that means, you know, he's got to feed his children less, right? Mm -hmm. As a dad, how do you deal with that, right? And so rather than burying it, I just started to talk to him about it. Mm -hmm. And what came out at that moment was fascinating. He said, he said, you know, you're our guest. I want you to try this. He says, we have the chicha. He said, we have the, the bird that uh, he had these little flightless uh, arrows that he shot these sort of wild jungle chickens with. He roast that. He said, there's other food for us to eat. I want you to make sure to have this because this is really special. Wow. And by the way, we're special. eating this, we're eating this meal uh, in a house made of, of found objects you know, driftwood mm -hmm. and uh, pieces of, of jungle flotsam and jetsam that he built this little house on stilts with, right? The art on the walls in the house were magazines that tourists had thrown into the river. They'd gotten wet and faded and they dried them out and put them up on the walls of their house. They didn't even know who these people were. I'll never forget one of them was uh, Princess Di and uh, it was a Princess Di um, sort of retrospective story in some uh, German magazine. And there were Michael faded, Jackson in bubbles, faded <laughs> pictures of her up there. And I was just like, my God, this is, if, if I don't emerge from this experience, a better and more humble person, mm -hmm. if oh I'm goodness. not able to transmit that to the rest of the viewers who are watching this show, then something is really wrong. And, yeah. and luckily it did change me. I was able to transmit that mm -hmm. and it really became a, a very big legacy show. A lot of folks watched because they wanted to see a fat white guy travel around the world and eat bugs. <laughs> That's fine. But the, the more important uh, takeaway was that it was good family co-viewing where people mm -hmm. could really sit down and watch something. And if you wanted to learn something, you paid attention and learned something. You just wanted to be entertained. You sat there and were entertained. And for people who wanted to vacillate between the two, go for it. Uh, but I think it really was a, an honor and a privilege to be able to make that show. Yeah, I remember. Hi. Sorry, Margaret. I remember just on, to, to pony on that. I, I have had some memories of things like things you can't unsee that change your mm -hmm. life. Things like, you know, in, in the world, like right. Haiti and yep. Uh, right. Uh, you just can't unsee that. You, you, can't, you right. can't. It's a great point, Chef. You can't travel to Haiti and spend any time there and not be changed as a human being. I mean, I have to tell you, I went mm. there with uh, our former CEO to help. Right. And man, I was, I still am. I mean, the shock value of how people are forced to live. And then you come home and you, you kiss every single tile you have in your bathroom yeah yep. you know what i mean it's like yep. unreal so 1, important well i wanted to go back to what you were saying and i don't know if i've ever shared this story with you jamie uh -oh. um andrew the reason i do kitchen chat is to honor my late father who was a wonderful gourmet home chef he passed away 30 years ago from a massive heart attack while in paris and he would have loved you oh my goodness um I found letters where he wrote about a trip 
in Panama, where he visited the Kuna Indians, and a very similar situation where he was invited to partake in this corn. They chewed the corn and then would spit it into yep. a cup. Yeah. Yes. And oh, let you it know ferment. about that. Sure. Oh, wow. So I, I, I can only imagine my dad sitting with the Kuna Indians and experiencing that. He did end up with a liver condition after that. Well, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the chicha can be made, uh, you know, s- uh, several countries in Central and South America do it with corn, uh, others with other starchy uh, vegetables uh, and tubers. But it's basically all the same thing. It ferments. And, you know, the, the, the people who have been consuming this for thousands of years together communally are all sharing the same bacterium, right? It's mm-hmm. not a problem for them. Um, obviously, I had a, a constitution that was able to handle these kinds of things. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made the show for almost 13 years. But when, the, uh, when other people on the crew would try something, it would get very, very dicey, and some of them would get very sick. Almost to the, got to the point in certain conditions, I wouldn't let crew members try try things. I remember a very funny story. I was up with uh, some Athabascan uh, peoples, some of the first peoples of Central Alaska, and they um, they would dip dried fish uh, in uh, fermented whale and seal oil. And they would use it to season the dried fish, make it easier to eat. It added some fat into their diet. And the, the stuff was, had a horrific aroma. And it was the type of food that most people that weren't uh, native to their tribe just refused to eat. Some couldn't even be in the room with it. Well, I tried it, and I actually kind of liked it. And the, the, the director at the time uh, stopped the camera. He said, okay, let's reposition the cameras and get a wider shot of Andrew doing the same thing. I took another bite and he goes, okay, let's get a close up." I took another bite. And one of the, the grandmothers leaned over and said, you need to stop eating the seal oil. Now there was a little cup of seal oil. I didn't know they had gallons of it in the garage. There was a little cup. So I automatically assumed it was like, Oh, we, we don't really have a lot. To, to eat and we have to share it all. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Director comes over and says he really has to do that. She's like, well, we have tons of it. You know, don't worry about that. But, and he cuts her off. She's trying to tell me something. The videographer cuts her off. Everyone is cutting this woman <laughs> off. Finally, she just like throws up her hands. I'm not really understanding what's going on, but I'm trying to make my, my work colleagues happy, right? It's a team sport. So they're like, getting more shots. They want to do a slow-mo. They want to get, you know, I mean, all the little things, they just love the seal oil. And we learned after a couple of years of making the show that certain ingredients we knew the network really liked, the audience really liked, and who's, who doesn't want me to be eating the seal oil? So I ate about, I don't know, 10 bites of this stuff. All the others ate like three. And when we were all done and we're eating the rest of the meal, uh, I leaned over to the lady who had been doing the warning and said, you know, hey, what, by the way, what were you trying to say? I'm sorry for interrupting you. And she said, well, a couple of things. Number one, uh, you've got about two hours to get home and get to the toilet because that much fermented whale oil, you'll probably be occupied for a while. And I'm like, okay, noted. Uh, and we were wrapping up there anyway. So I was only a half hour from the 
house we had rented to stay in. And she said, uh, but I'm really concerned about your temperature. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we consume the whale oil because it essentially triggers a chemical reaction in your body. Your body doesn't like it. There's things in the fermented whale oil that your body does not want. And to purge it, your adrenal system basically induces a fever. And I was like, you're kidding me. She goes, no. So in little, little, little bits, it keeps us warmer. It elevates our internal body temperature. And about a half hour later, I'm doing stand-ups in their living room, you know, the typical kind of tosses to break and stuff like that. And lo and behold, I start getting dizzy. I start to feel like body aches. And I look at them and they all look. Three minutes later, I was being carried out of the lodge. They were stripped. It's 10 degrees below zero outside, by the way. And they're literally stripping me down to a T-shirt. I finally felt comfortable in a T-shirt in that weather. And they're rubbing my arms so I don't get frostbite. Because the only thing that's going to break this fever is by keeping me in the cold, but not letting me get frostbite. It was the, uh, I mean, you talk about, people talk about meat sweats. No, 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 no. Whale oil sweats are the ones that are really dangerous. Who knew? Who knew? This poor woman says, she's trying to tell him, you're going to poop your brains out and sweat your brains out. That's Stop right. Eating Stop Aww. eating it. But I love that they use the, the you know, food is medicine as consumed yeah. all around the world. Yeah. It has this higher purpose, right? And we've turned into lotus eaters where everything is just for pleasure, that that's the only higher purpose. And in fact, when you look at everything about modern culture, 99% of our problems come from our selfish pursuit of pleasure. It's going on right now uh, with the, you know, people thinking that uh, the use of masks is a political statement, right? It's not a political statement. There's a global pandemic. We have this nasty virus. Like, everyone should wear a mask so that we don't get each other sick and we, and we mitigate the spread of this thing and contain it. And, you know, the, the idea that, you know, oh, well, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it is, you know, clinical psychologists call that the king baby syndrome. I mean, you know, it's, it's all about me, 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 me. And that's what our fast-paced modern culture has has gifted us with and it's very very dangerous very dangerous mm. thinking and speaking of the pandemic you're very much part of the independent restaurant coalition uh-huh. what are your thoughts about what we can be doing to support the restaurants every single human being in america that cares about restaurants should be doing one thing go to saverestaurants.com www.saverestaurants.com sign up for our newsletter Email your representatives or other representatives. They don't even have to be yours on the widgets that are on our website. Very easy to use and help us to get the Restaurants Act passed. The only solution, the only solution, it's like putting gas in a car. The only thing that works is the $120 billion relief package that is going to go to independent restaurants to keep open uh, over the next nine months. So we can pay tax credits to pay our employees uh, dollars that we can pay our rent and our utilities while we're operating at either 0% of capacity in some states and counties right now or 25% of capacity. Very few uh, restaurants in America are able to do more business than that right now. Um, if we do not get that passed before Christmas, we're looking at an extinction event of as much as 80% of restaurants, uh, independent ones. 
it is it has been reported in the news that we've lost a uh, 25 or 30 percent of restaurants to date that we may lose another 25 or 30 i think that number is 20 percent off i think it's 70 to 80 if we don't Mm -hmm. get that relief program uh in place just based on the number of restaurants that are closed and kind of waiting to see what happens um you know i have one of my restaurants we we just shut it down pay our rent and are waiting to see what happens with the uh, relief program. Uh, We lose less money that way. Uh, Mm -hmm. At least I know what I'm losing every month. It is, you know, restaurant and food people are the greatest people in the whole world. I know I'm preaching to the converted, Um, but there are no finer human beings. While we're getting kicked in the teeth and kneecapped by this virus in terms of our businesses that have very, very small margins, Look who's out there feeding people for free and taking care of first responders and dropping off food at hospitals and donating money to fundraisers and chefs instead of being with their crews in their restaurants, even though they're short staffed or doing a Zoom dinner to benefit a local charity because they're cut off from monies too. food people have really rallied in an incredible way. And if anyone who loves food and restaurants should go out and try to do everything that they can to uh, convince the set. Congress has already passed it. Uh, you know, it's $120 billion, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Office of Management and Budget, there is no one, McKinsey, everyone has looked at this uh, economic situation. It will cost us $270 billion if we don't. It makes economic sense. It's not left or right or red and blue. This is a forward issue with a trillion-dollar industry that represents 4% of GDP. We have to be able to set aside some money for industry-specific relief programs. And there's no more deserving industry than the restaurants of America. Do you know, collectively, independent restaurants are the second largest business in America, second only to the U.S. government? And that includes the Defense Department. That's an incredible thing. The number one group that's on unemployment lines right now are restaurant workers. Mm. We have to, we have to do something about this situation. We have to support the restaurants act. So I would encourage people go to save restaurants.com. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, so true. Unbelievable. Yes. All that is crazy information. And thank you for what you're doing. And really the restaurants are the heartbeats of the community. Always have been. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into what it does for tourism, what it does for Main Street with its tax base. You know, the average restaurant makes seven and a half percent in profit. And most Mm. of that goes back into the business. Got to buy a new stove, got to, you know, uh, buy some dishes from ones that broke. Right. The, The supply chain that goes in, you extrapolate out the economic impact of restaurants closing. I mean, just think about this. 75 percent of the fish sold in America is consumed in restaurants. Wow. So imagine imagine what that's going to do to the the fishermen. We can't export 100 percent of what the U.S. fisheries yeah, bring the in. ripple effect ridiculous. is crazy. Bad. It's crazy. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So it has to be supported. People people think, well, those the, the mom and pop will shut down. Another mom and pop will open in its place. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And that's not how the modern rent system uh, works. Uh, it wasn't even true 50 years ago. So I think it's, it's really, really important. It's vital from an, from an economic. I mean, look, this is why it's a bipartisan thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a left wing Lindsay socialist, you know, from the 60s or you're, you know, a, a conservative hawk you are behind this just simply because of the economic implications. 
for our country. We have to backstop them. Otherwise, it's going to cost us two and a half times what it would have to solve the problem. Wow. Thank you for what you're doing to help support restaurants. It's so important. Well, our coalition, it's not just it's not just me in all fairness. And yes, there were 20, 30 of us co-founded this thing back in March. Uh, But there are thousands, you know, of members. Uh, We have a leadership team, 70, 80 strong that meets twice a week. And we are laser focused simply on passing legislation that helps preserve our industry. So it's it's very important work. Yes, very important work. Well, I cannot wait on a happy note one day for all the restaurants in Chicago to be open again. And and are you ever in the Chicago area? Well, I was going to Chicago once a month. Uh, Yeah, I know. Uh, So I will come see you at the showroom the next time we're down there once we're traveling again. Absolutely. Last last February, I think, uh, no, I went, I did a day trip to Nashville at, at one point a couple of months ago. Uh, when it still seemed to be safe to do so, to take a look at some real estate down there. Uh, and before that was Los Angeles to do the Bill Maher show in February. I've, I've not traveled at all. I miss it. Mm. I miss it. And uh, yeah, Chicago, I mean, look, it's a, for most people in Minneapolis, it's a five and a half hour drive. I'm there in four hours flat. Um, <laughs> I love Somehow. Chicago. One of my, Somehow. one of my favorite cities. I mean, uh, yes. And on that note, obviously, we talked earlier about, you know, all of the different appliance brands that we have from the Middle East Corporation, all the great brands that you're familiar with, Viking and all those uh, ranges that we talked about. I'm so glad that you love all of those brands. And please come in and see us. They're different. And, you know, uh, again, we we have no relationship this way. Uh, But, you know, for for, you know, Cooks were looking for uh, artisan and uh, traditional heating systems for uh, ranges and cooktops and things like that. Uh, you know, you have brands uh, like uh, like La Cornu and uh, some of the other European brands that uh, still have a different kind of functionality than the traditional American ranges uh, that are represented by you have you have Viking, don't you? Yeah, we have Viking, yep. we have Aga, but yeah, Vikings are... You know, around. Aga and La Cornu, right, have the sa- basically the same sort yep. of heating systems. Um, and, and so these are, you know, these are really uh, incredibly uh, versatile uh, pieces of equipment that will last a lifetime. A friend of mine just got a La Cornu suite, and she absolutely, absolutely adores it. Um, you know, if you're a chef, you wind up being kind of an equipment geek, a knife geek, an ingredient oh, yeah. geek. You know, you just oh. you, you can't sort of get enough of the new toys that uh, that come out these days. So, yeah, it's and, and thank you, by the way, for everyone at Middleby for supporting these types of conversations. I really do think uh, at the end of the day, whoever is writing the check to support this uh, should know that these messages and these conversations that you're having with chefs are really important for listeners to hear. And so everyone, I think, is doing the right kind of work by making sure that, that an audience gets to hear it. Hey, listen, I have to say something. I know we kissed earlier in the, in the year and all that, but I didn't know how much I actually was in love with you after oh, this conversation. You. <laughs> you are so unbelievably passionate and lovable and intelligent and articulate in so many ways. I think I might I'll fight Margaret for the next. We got a thing. We got a thing. <laughs> we got a thing going on. It's are, like it's like a it, it's like a tip ball to start a basketball game. When I come down, someone can throw me up, and you guys can fight over me. 
Oh, oh, I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna fight. No, I'll, I'll let I'll let Margaret have have uh, the personal because you're you're just the best thank you so much for thank you thank you it's it's great oh and by the way any listeners who want i mean we were involved in so many things our 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 tv shows uh the social justice work that we do um the the things like the spice line the the other things that we get into here in our office uh with our businesses uh and the stuff that our production company does if people are looking uh for more info i encourage you to go to andrewzimmern.com tons of info there we have a, a newsletter that goes out so you can stay up to date on stuff that we do uh but it really it's fun big it's an award-winning website uh other people have said it's really great so i don't have to Oh, and it is great. And you are great. And foodie friends, I'll make sure we have a link to andrewzimmern.com for you. But I always like to end the show, Andrew, with the top three tips for the home chef. So what does Chef Andrew Zimmern recommend for top three tips? Easy. I'll tell you what home cooks don't do enough of. They work too small. They chop 10 onions on a cutting board you should chop one on, right? Get big cutting boards. They mix a salad in a bowl that's big enough where all the ingredients are crowning it. Get a big mixing bowl, right? Everything that a home cook does, they work too small. Uh, They crowd a saute pan. You know, when, you know, I look at my friends who are jamming eight chicken thighs into an eight inch (laughs) saute pan. I'm like, what are you doing? That's why you buy a 14 inch skillet. So there's room between the thighs so they can brown so that you can, Keep your thermal momentum as you're as you're cooking um, so that the, the, the chicken actually tastes better. So don't work so small. Number go two at home. That's so big. One. Number two, stop with everything on medium. It, crank the heat up. Home cooks don't cook with enough heat. Preheat your pans on low. Get those pans nice and hot so the so the, what you put in it starts searing and cooking right away. Right. Right. Um, yep. And then and then the third thing, and I know this is the the biggest food cliche out there, but I I constantly, no matter how much people like me talk about it uh, at the level of press, radio, television, etc., every time I'm in someone's home, I never see them taste the food. Actually, I'll double down on that. In today's world of open kitchens, I watch professionals not taste their food. Taste everything at every stage. That's how you learn what what stuff tastes like and what the act of heat and acid and combinations of flavors does to food, right? If you're not tasting your food, you're not learning. Love that. All great tips. And I love that you bring experiencing food, experiencing culture to our tables. Chef Andrew Zimmern, thank you so much for being on Kitchen Chat. Thank you, Chef Jamie, as well, my co-host. And thank you, dear foodie friends. Please continue to follow the fun and follow the links. And always remember to take a moment and savor the day. Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.